God, our Father, Lord, we praise you. We honor you and we bless you, holy God. Oh, Lord, we lift up your name and we are in awe of your greatness and your power. Oh, Lord, we look at the works of your hands and we see the intelligence of your mind is far beyond our comprehension. Lord, your mighty power in creating the heavens and the earth. And Lord, we see these things and we realize how transcendent you are and we praise you, God. We honor you. We bless you. We thank you for our life. We thank you for our being. We thank you for the privilege that we have, Lord, to live and to love and to experience all that you have created for us. Oh, Lord, you are a good God, and we praise you for your goodness. We honor you, and we bless you, and we, we pray that you would help us, Lord, to, to understand your holiness, your righteousness, your goodness. Oh, Lord, may it be the very fruit of our lives. We thank you, Lord, for the precious blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ, We thank you for his glorious cross. And Lord, we do treasure it. And we are exceedingly thankful for all that you have done for us in Christ, even the forgiveness of our sins. And so, Lord, now we thank you that we are in right relationship with you. Because of Jesus. We thank you, Lord for all that you are doing in our lives by your Holy Spirit and by your word. We pray, Lord, that we would have willing hearts, receptive hearts. O Lord, that as you conform us into your image, Lord, that we would cooperate, that we would uh, be ready, Lord, to obey when we are convicted. And God, grant us humble hearts, humble hearts of repentance, Lord, as you change us and mold us. Lord, we want to be like Jesus. And so this morning we pray that you would help us to see him more clearly. God, give us eyes to see and give us ears to hear. We thank you for your love to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, well, in the book of Colossians in chapter 1, In verse 16 and 17, it reads like this. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Well, here we have some statements about the Lord Jesus Christ. And in fact, the scripture here says that he is the creator of everything, both in the heavens and on the earth. And it's been our goal here uh, in this class starting this year, as we've been looking at the person of Jesus Christ, for us to develop a biblical view of Jesus. Who does the Bible say that Jesus is? 
When the Bible describes Jesus, who is that Jesus? What is he like? And it's important for us to understand this because apart from the Scripture, there is no revelation about Jesus because the Scripture is the record of his life. The Scripture is the record of his incarnation. And uh, as we have seen, uh, Jesus is the very center focus of history, that he is the most important thing or being that there is. In fact, the scripture says here that all things were created by him and all things were created for him. So that we see that our very existence has its purpose in Jesus, that we were created for Jesus that our life, our existence, our planet, our, our families, our, our, uh, our environment, everything that we are and everything that we have was created for Jesus and by Jesus. That's who the Bible says Jesus is. Amen? And that, uh, of course, makes Him the center focus of history. That... He is the very creator of the world. And, and so as we look in the Bible and we see how God has revealed himself in Christ, we, we find out that Jesus is the center focus of the whole Bible. And that the, the volume of the book is written of him. It's written to show him, to reveal him, to point us to him that we might see Him and come to know Him and come to love Him and thereby glorify Him with the glory that is due to Him. Amen? And so it is true that Jesus was a man, a man born of a woman who lived in Galilee some 2,000 years ago. But that man was God in the flesh. As we've clearly seen, the biblical Jesus is God incarnate in the flesh. He is fully God and fully man. And this is what the incarnation is. It is God coming in the flesh to be a man and living as a man. And so we've been discussing this biblical uh, picture of Jesus. And uh, if you will... As we looked at Jesus in the Old Testament, we began to uh, look beyond that to see uh, the very nature of Christ. And so we have been looking at the two natures of Christ. And so for the past three weeks in the class, we've been talking about the, uh, the fact that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. And for three weeks, we've actually been talking about his deity in different ways. And... Um, at first we looked at the incarnation and we said that, you know, God became a man in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then um, for the last two weeks, uh, our brother Ryan Bobbin came and, and he uh, presented two lessons to us, one on the preexistence of Christ and another then on the deity of Christ, which, if you will, are, are very similar and related topics. By the way, Ryan did a fabulous job. Thank you, Ryan. Very much. I, I listened to both of his lessons, and I was extremely impressed with his, his gifting. Praise God 
for his gifting. And we need more of that, brother. So I certainly appreciate your willingness. Thank you so much. Um, But uh, uh, so Ryan came and he talked about the fact that the scripture clearly says that Jesus pre-existed his human existence in the flesh as eternal God, God the Son in heaven, the second member of the Trinity. And that Jesus uh, again and again is presented in scriptures as, as having pre-existed his time on earth. And, it, and if you will, the, the pre-existence uh, or, or the, the, the fact that, that God has come in the flesh, the incarnation of Christ implies his pre-existence. It is to say that God was God outside of the flesh and that God became flesh. And this is what it says in John chapter 1, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And, and so that the very idea of the incarnation implies that he existed as God outside of his body before he came. And so the scripture makes these many other claims and, and speaks of Jesus as the one who was sent. Or he says of himself, I uh, uh, have come down from heaven. And, and these things in, uh, very emphatically imply explicitly should we say. They don't just imply. They explicitly state that he pre-existed his existence as a human being. It's a very interesting thing to think about because there is no other man like that in the history of the world. There's no other man or woman like that in the history of the world. Nobody pre-existed their existence here on earth. Now, I understand there's some false religions that teach things like that. Some of them you may be well acquainted with. But the fact of the matter is, nobody pre-exists their birth here on earth, except for one, Jesus. Amen? And so Jesus makes a statement like this, before Abraham was, I am. Amen? And so he becomes this very unique man, unlike any other man that's ever lived. He is God incarnate in the flesh. And he pre-existed his existence here on earth as the eternal Son of God in heaven. Very uh, difficult thing to grasp in one sense, but yet in another you can see how, how if God has his existence outside of time and he transcends the physical creation, then for him to come into creation and manifest himself as a man... Well, pre-existence can be no other thing but that. Amen? So it is, in fact, how God entered into time and space to reveal himself to us and show himself to us. And so, if you will, so that he could speak our language, so that he could become a word to us, right? And communicate his glory to us, he became a man. He came and spoke our language. He, he became one of us so that we could fully understand, at least in as much as we have capacity to, what he is like. Amen? And this is what Jesus said to, he said to Philip. He said, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Amen? And if you will, Jesus is God's, is, is God's revelation of himself to us. He is the Word become flesh. 
And so then last week, Ryan was on the topic of the deity of Christ, and he was showing how the scripture very clearly attributes to Jesus the fact that he is God, very God. And so the scripture is filled with these references about Jesus being God. And I want to just affirm what what Ryan said. This isn't confusing in the Bible. This is crystal clear in the scripture. Again and again and again and again, the scripture affirms that Jesus is God. And I understand it's a difficult concept for us to grasp because we're not like him. We don't have two natures like he has. There's only one of him in human history. And it's a difficult thing for us to comprehend how a transcendent God can become a man and live and walk among us. It's a very unique thing. The scripture calls it a mystery in 1 Timothy 3.16. Right? It, it refers there as the mystery of godliness. He appeared in the flesh, it says. What a mystery that God could appear in the flesh. And it is. It's a mystery. It's a difficult thing to grasp. Nevertheless, it's true. And this is how God has chosen to reveal himself. But if you will, the, the, purpo- the, the, uh, the nature of Jesus is divine. And so when we think about who Jesus is, we must think of him first and foremost as God the Son. Because he himself is God, very God. And that's what he meant when he said to the Jews, I am. You understand? I am is the name by which God revealed himself to Moses, the prophet. And when God says he is, he's referring to the fact that he exists. And so Jesus says of himself, he is the I am. But the scripture is replete with these references that refer to the deity of Christ. For instance, in Colossians 2.9, it says, In him all the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. That's just another way of saying Jesus is God in the flesh. Amen? Crystal clear statements about his divinity. How about John 1.1? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right? He was in the beginning with God. Titus 2.13 calls Jesus our great God and Savior. Romans 9.5 says that Christ uh, is uh, overall God, blessed forever. And in John 20.28, Thomas calls Jesus my Lord and my God. And there, at that point in time, he did not receive a rebuke from Jesus. But Jesus accepted his statement, rightly saying, Thomas, that Jesus was God. Amen? And so, another sense in which Jesus, post-resurrection here, is affirming that he's God. When Thomas says, my Lord and my God, and Jesus receives his statement, then Jesus is affirming the fact that he's God. Amen? And of course, we know that to be true from Jesus' very words. But again, in in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 8, it says, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of His kingdom. This is of the Son, the Scripture says. Of the Son of God. It says, Thy throne, O God, is forever. Jesus' throne has existed forever in heavenly glory. Jesus is God the Son. 2 Peter 1.1 1, 1 
calls Him our God and our Savior. Isaiah 9, 6 says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Those are names, family, ascribed to Jesus, the child in the manger. Imagine the wonder of that one verse of Scripture alone. Think about how right there the prophet is prophesying that God will be born as a baby in a manger. Amazing. Amazing prophecy. Hindsight's twenty twenty, isn't it? You know what I'm saying? I mean, they didn't so much expect God to show up in a manger as a baby, now did they? Neither did they know the day of their visitation. Tragic. Isaiah says in chapter 6, In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of His robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above Him, each having six wings. With two He covered His face, with two He covered His feet, and with two He flew. And one called out to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth, is full of His glory. And then in John chapter 12, John ascribes that vision as the very glory of Christ. Verse 41, John chapter 12, verse 41. Throughout the New Testament, the word Lord is used to describe Jesus. It is a name that is given to Jesus And in Luke 2.11, it says He is Christ the Lord. Now, this word Lord is the very word that the Jews would refer to as Yahweh or Jehovah. Jehovah God. That very word in the Greek, of course, um, uh, is a different word. But the point is is that the, the Jews refer to God in this covenant name of Lord. And Jesus is again and again and again referred to in the New Testament as this Lord. In other words, when Jesus is called Lord in the New Testament, it is referring to the fact that He is God. It's a very simple thing that we often don't really understand about biblical language. Matthew twenty-two forty-one, 41, uh, Jesus quoting David, David in the Spirit calls Him Lord saying, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And then he asks the question, if David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And of course, presents the difficult quandary for the Jews to figure out. Effectively saying, I'm the Son of God, come down from heaven. In 1 Corinthians 12, 3, the scripture says, Jesus is Lord. And in Revelation 19, 16, it says He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There's only one of those, family. Amen? There's only one Lord of lords. There's only one God of gods. Amen? Well, so, the Scripture is very clear in revealing the fact that Jesus is God. In passages like Hebrews 1.3, 
He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His nature. In Hebrews 1-2, He's the one through whom the universe was made. In 1 Corinthians 8-6, the Scripture says that Jesus Christ is the one by whom are all things and we exist through Him. In the, in the first chapter of John, verse 3, it says that by Jesus, all things came into being by Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And again, the scripture we looked at in Colossians 1, by Him, for by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth. So, when you think about the biblical Jesus... What ought to come to your mind is the second member of the Trinity, God, very God. Jesus is God. That's what the Bible says. And um, so as not to be confused, this does not mean that Jesus is not man. And this is why we spent some time talking about the fact that Jesus took on an additional nature. He took on the nature of a man. And he's the only being like that in history. Jesus is fully God and fully man. And so if you will, the topic of our lesson this morning is the humanity of Christ. And we're there on your handout on page 15. And it's kind of an interesting thing to consider. It seems like a very straightforward thing that everybody acknowledges that Jesus was a man. It seems a little bit harder for people to understand that he was God, particularly unbelievers. In fact, uh, for the unbeliever, this is the very thing that they must believe (laughs) to become a believer is to believe that Jesus is God in the flesh. Amen? And so, if you will, uh, most unbelievers wouldn't deny the existence of Jesus as a man. History bears out that record. Amen? They really have to stretch, though, to come to the understanding that He's God. You know, and it, with a lot of, of uh, unbelievers, it's it's a kind of an unclear thing to them, and they really don't even understand. A lot of Christians didn't understand that Jesus was God, very God, until they became a Christian and they came to church and they began to be taught the Bible and they began to read the Bible and see the biblical record. Well, they thought that Jesus was God's son, and of course, he is God's son. Amen. But what does that make him? Well, that makes him God, right? And so, if you will, uh, it's it's difficult for people to come to this full-orbed biblical revelation of Jesus that he is God in the flesh, okay? But that is, of course, as we have seen, exactly who the Bible portrays him to be. Uh, So when we talk about the humanity of Jesus, it's not something we just want to skim right over and say, well, you know, Jesus was a man. Everybody knows that. Okay, what's up? What's next? Right? 
because there is a bit to this to really grasp and understand. And so the topic of today's lesson, the humanity of Christ. Most people agree that Jesus was a man. This is one of the most widely embraced facts in all of history. Hardly anyone would question this because the historical evidence is overwhelming. The historical evidence that Jesus is a man is overwhelming, right? And I'm not going to go through it. It's a, it's a plain fact uh, in, in history. However, the theological implications regarding Jesus' humanity have been questioned and scrutinized for centuries. It is important for us to understand how the Scripture reveals the humanity of Christ so that we can have a biblical and therefore accurate view of who Jesus Christ is. In this consideration, it is important to understand that even though Jesus was God incarnate, as we have seen, He was also born of a woman and was fully man. The Scripture makes this very plain. And so, if you will, in Luke 2.7, it says that Mary gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him in clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And so Jesus was born, just like all other men were born. He was carried in Mary's womb and born on a given day. And uh, the scripture testifies to that fact. In Galatians 4.4 it says, When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, what? Born of a woman, born under the law. Jesus was a man, born of a woman. Well, <clears throat> Jesus was seen and known as a man by those around him. And he is spoken of in the scripture <clears throat> as a man. This is a very obvious fact. And again, nobody really questions this. Now, I understand there are some weird, tripped out freaks <laughs> who question the fact that Jesus was a man. I understand. They're running around all over the world, right? I used to be one of them. <laughs> But by and large, nobody's questioning the fact that Jesus was a man. We read in the Bible, Jesus is a man. He's walking around the shores of Galilee with his disciples. I mean, it's such a simple thing, right? Jesus was a man. <laughs> the difficulty comes in understanding how he can be God in the flesh. And thus, all of the theological questions and the theological scrutinizing that's gone on through the ages. Because men would read the Bible, and the Bible would say, Jesus is God, and they'd say, well, how, if he's God, how can he be man? Well, I don't know. I suppose if I knew that, I'd be God. Right? Again, it's the mystery of godliness. He appeared in the flesh. 1 Timothy 3.16. Right? So... <clears throat> You know, it's kind of one of these things where it's, it's so simple. Look, we're looking through the forest. Guess what? There's trees there. Okay? Jesus is a man. You with me? And so, uh, again, I understand. We're not questioning this fact. Neither are we questioning the fact that the Bible speaks of Jesus as a man. And the Bible speaks of Jesus as being God. And so, if you will, we call him the God-man. Amen? And so the biblical Jesus is both God and man. 
Well, we see uh, scriptures that make it very clear that Jesus was a man. How about Matthew 13, 54 and following? There it says, In coming to his hometown, he began teaching them in their synagogue so that they became astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? And then they say about him, Is this not the carpenter's son? Right? Hey, isn't this uh, Jesus? You know, the kid that lives down the street? You know, the one my kids play kick the can with? Isn't that who this is? Yeah, that's who this is. This is the carpenter's son, Jesus. This man who has this wisdom. Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters? Are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And so here, if you will, here are some contemporaries of Jesus on the shores of Galilee commenting, isn't this the Jesus that we all know? Isn't this the guy that grew up down the street over here outside of Capernaum? Isn't that Jesus? Yeah, that's Jesus. And that's how the Scripture speaks of him, as a man. And the people who were around Jesus realized he was a man and spoke of him as a man. Well, uh, Jesus was a man. He had a normal human body, just like all men. He was born as a baby. He grew up with a normal childhood and matured as a man. You know, we have these little references in Scripture, like, you know, when Jesus is 12, and his parents are down in Jerusalem for the feast, right? And they go to leave, and they get part of the way home, and they realize all of a sudden, where's Jesus? Where is that Jesus? (laughs) right and so they come back to town and they look all over and they find him and they there he is and and they say jesus where have you been right didn't you know i had to be in my father's house right we see these things jesus is a normal 12 year old except for the fact that he's got to be in his father's house amen but the point is, he lived as a man. He had a childhood. He grew. He grew up as a man. The scripture says that he grew as he matured. He grew in favor with God and with man. Jesus had all the regular human weaknesses that accompany all human beings, just like us. And again, this is a difficult thing for us to grasp. Why? Well, because we know the Bible says Jesus is God. So how can we say he has weaknesses? Does God have weaknesses? No, God does not have weaknesses. But when God takes on an additional nature as a man, what then does he take on? Well, how about the most obvious thing? He takes on the limitations of time and space. Right? He's no longer omnipresent in his humanity. Now is he? In other words, he's at one place at one time. He's not like God the Father, who is spirit and omnipresent, in, in his humanity. You with me? Of course, we know that he is in his deity because that's God's nature and he's fully God, which means he's omnipresent in that sense. Very difficult concept to understand. It's a mystery. Okay? Nevertheless, these are things that are very obvious to us. The scripture says Jesus is a man. The scripture says Jesus is God. And so, if you will, this is what creates the theological conundrums. 
But Jesus did, in fact, take on a human body. He took on the limitations of time and space. And because of that, he therefore took on all of the normal weaknesses that we have as people. Okay? Jesus is spoken of in Scripture as being thirsty, as becoming tired and sleeping, and, and also becoming hungry. Okay? Um, in fact, after being beaten and crucified... Jesus died just like men die. Now, how's that for a mystery? A bleeding God dying on a cross at the hands of godless men. Oh, blessed mystery. Precious mystery. Amen? Well, the scripture is clear about this. John 4, 6 says, Jesus therefore being wearied from his journey was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Jesus walking all day, sits down by the well. He's tired. Matthew 4, 2, it says that after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, He then became hungry. I hope so. I hope he's hungry after 40 days of not eating. Amen? I tend to get hungry if I don't have lunch. Right? In John 19, 28, Jesus is hanging on the cross and he says, I am thirsty. Luke 23, 46 after he had hung on the cross some time, says he breathed his last. That's a way of describing he died. Amen? Jesus died. So I'll ask you the question, did Jesus take on human weaknesses? Yes. How do we know that? It's crystal clear in the words of Scripture, is it not? He was tired. He became hungry. He was in a body. He was there hanging on the cross. And what was he doing there? Dying. That's a weakness. That's something he could only do in a human nature. Because let me tell you something, God has life in himself and God doesn't die. It's impossible for God to die. But it's not impossible for a man to die. Okay? So then, it's one of these things that we have to grasp by faith. And it's, it's going to get deeper here in a minute. But just in the simple fact that we see that the Bible clearly expresses that Jesus is God, that he preexisted his human existence, but that he became a man and dwelt among us, as God, and as the Scripture has described Him as God, we've seen that clearly. And here now we've seen that the Scripture clearly describes Him as a man taking on these weaknesses. It's something that we kind of have to grasp by faith because we can't really work that out in our brain. How can He be God the Son, omnipresent and omnipotent, and yet be in a human body? How can that be? Well, it's a divine mystery. But namely, it happened by the agency of the virgin birth. Amen? 
God became a man, and he dwelt among us. So then, along with his normal body, he had normal, a normal mind and emotions, which are seen in many places in the Scripture. Listen, he faced the whole range of human emotions just as we have. This is also clear in the Scripture. In Hebrews 2.17, it says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. The Scripture said that he had to be made like his brethren in all things to make propitiation. Important thing to remember when we start talking about the atonement, that he had to become a man. God had to become a man in order to properly propitiate his wrath for our sins. Well, what about this idea that Jesus took on so, so much weakness that he was tempted, the scripture says. That Jesus was tempted. Well, the scripture says he was tempted, yet sinless. In fact, even though Jesus possessed a fully divine nature, the scripture affirms that he was tempted in all things as we are, and yet was without sin. Now, let's think even a little further about these human weaknesses that he has. And here the scripture says that he was tempted. Hebrews 4.15 For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. And so here the scripture makes a very clear statement that Jesus was tempted. And in Matthew 4, verses 1 through 10, although I'm only going to read for you verses 1 through 4, we have a record of a certain point in time when Jesus was tempted. Although there are other temptations that Jesus faced throughout his uh, life and ministry, it wasn't just here uh, at the temptation, what we call the temptation of Christ. But here in Matthew 4, verses 1 and following, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And so here the scripture says that Jesus was led up into the desert to be tempted, or for the purpose of being tempted by the devil. And if you will, there's a record of of three specific temptations that were given to Jesus by the devil. And we know that each time he overcame him by the word of God. Amen? And Jesus would quote the scripture and say, It is written. And he would quote the scripture and then he would obey. In Hebrews 2.18, there it says that, "For For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. So, The scripture plainly says that Jesus was tempted, okay? Now, remember how in our minds here, the goal is we're trying to develop a biblical view of Jesus, okay? Write this down, Christian. Jesus Christ was tempted. 
Don't let anybody tell you Jesus wasn't tempted. Okay? Jesus Christ was tempted by the devil. Tempted to sin. That's what the Bible says. Hebrews 4.15, Matthew 4.1-10, Hebrews 2.18. It's crystal clear. Okay? Now, I understand there's a lot of controversy about this. I'm going to address that. But in, in your mind, you need to understand what the Bible says in a crystal clear way, a crystal clear manner. Okay? Jesus was tempted to sin by the devil. Okay? But how can this be? If Jesus had a divine nature and was fully God, does not the Scripture affirm that God cannot be tempted by evil? Indeed it does. In James, the Scripture clearly says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, for he himself does not tempt anyone. Okay? So, how can this be? If Jesus is God, how can he be tempted? Well, let me ask you a question. If Jesus is God, how can he live in a body confined in time and space? If Jesus is God, how can he be tired and become weary? If Jesus is God, how does he get hungry? And how does he get thirsty? Okay? If Jesus is God, how can he be tempted? Okay? Same problem, same issue. And now you understand all the theological scrutiny down through the ages about the humanity and the deity of Christ. You with me? It's a controversial issue. It's not something that we have some final revelation about that we can understand. It's a very difficult thing for us to grasp. It is the mystery, like I said, the mystery of godliness. So what I'm saying is, if we want to ask the question, how is it that if Jesus is God, how can he be tempted? You need to relate that to this same other questions we're asking. If he's God, how can he have a normal range of emotions? If he's God, how can he have uh, become hungry and tired and weary? If Jesus is God, how can he die on the cross? You with me? Is it possible for God to die? No, it's not possible for God to die. Is it possible for God to be tempted by evil? No, it's not possible for God to be tempted by evil. Why? Because He's infinitely holy. He is the very definition of what goodness and holiness and righteousness is. God defines what evil is by His very existence. That which is opposed to Him is what evil is. God cannot be tempted by evil. Right? Can God become tired and weary? Can God become hungry and thirsty? Of course not. You with me? So then, how is it that Jesus was tempted? How is it that Jesus became tired and weary? How is it that Jesus became hungry and thirsty? Well, I think it really is a very simple thing to understand. When you understand that Jesus took on an additional nature as a man. Okay? So I try to define it like this. There's been much debate over this question through the ages, but the dilemma is not unclear in Scripture. 
He, it is clear that in his divine nature, Jesus could not be tempted. Therefore, we must conclude that he was in fact tempted in his human nature. That as a man, he was tempted. As a man, he entered time and space and took on the limitations of a human body. As a man, he became hungry and tired and weary. It had to be that way. It had to be that way. If God is going to become incarnate and become a man, he's got to take on those limitations and those weaknesses. And in the same sense, listen, Jesus had to be able to be tempted. Why? So that he could fulfill God's purpose of his obedience so that he could become salvation for us. He had to be. This is what the scripture says. That... um, in, in Hebrews 4.15, I'm sorry, it's Hebrews 2.17. He had to be made like his brethren in all things. For what purpose? To make propitiation for the sins of the people. This was the way God worked out the plan. He became a man incarnate in the flesh. And he lived and walked among us. And he took on the, humita- the limitations that we have. And this is a glorious truth. This is a glorious thing about how God has revealed himself as a man. Now we can look at Jesus and we can understand who God is. There are communicable attributes that we understand of God by looking at the person of Jesus. Amen? So then, we must conclude that Jesus was in fact tempted in his human nature. And I... I, tried to describe it a little further, it must be very much like the temptation of Adam. As Adam had not sinned prior to the fall, yet when tempted, he fell. So think about how Adam was before the fall. Adam was without sin. He had not committed sin. Okay, And there was no sin in him at that point. Why? Because he hadn't committed it. But when Adam was presented with the temptation from the tempter, what happened? He disobeyed and he fell. And he broke the law of God. He transgressed God's character. He transgressed God's commandment not to eat from the tree. Right? But before that point of falling into sin, Adam was without sin. Okay? Well, Jesus was like this, and I say he was like this. I'm not saying he was exactly like Adam. He wasn't exactly like Adam. Okay? Adam was a man. Jesus was a man. But Jesus was God in the flesh, and Adam was not. Amen? It should speak volumes to us about what our salvation means. It should speak this this truth about Christ having two natures and being God, being fully God and fully man, should speak volumes to us about why Jesus is the only way to be saved. You understand? Buddha wasn't God incarnate in the flesh. He didn't come to live a righteous life in your place. He didn't come to earn and merit the favor of God for you. He didn't come to give his life as a sacrifice for your sins, which is the only thing that reconciles you to a holy God. 
This, this truth about the two natures of Christ, him being fully God and fully men, should speak volumes to us about the exclusivity of Christianity. Are you with me? Listen, if you don't come through the door, Jesus, you don't come through at all. Because the fundamental problem between us and God, the reason why we're dying, the reason why these human bodies die, the reason why they're suffering and pain and evil and death in the world is because of sin. It is our sins that have separated us from God. And there's only one unblemished lamb who died by the plan of redemption in the mind of the eternal God from before the foundation of the earth. He is the one, sinless one, who came to die. Amen? That's why He's the only way, and that's why Christianity is absolutely exclusive. You with me? Okay. So then, Jesus, unlike Adam, did not fail in His temptation, but triumphed over the works of the devil, remaining steadfast in His obedience to God, and yet was without sin. Now get this other thing about the temptation of Jesus. Jesus was tempted, and he was tempted, the scripture says, in all things like as we are. Okay? Yet he was without sin. And the scripture plainly declares that Jesus Christ lived a sinless life. There are a multitude of ways that the scripture describes this. For instance, Jesus is called the righteous one. Right? Or he's called the Holy One. Or, if you will, he's God, very God. Can God sin? Well, of course not. If the minute God sins, he's no longer God. Right? The two, it's, a, it, it's a, what do you call that? It's a, I'm sorry? Diametrically opposed. That's, those are good terms. God can't sin. Right? Jesus is God in his, in his divine nature. Listen, he cannot sin. Okay, And this is exactly what the scripture says about his life. He did not sin. He was without sin, even though he was tempted. And therefore, he fulfilled the law of God. He lived a sinless life. 1 Peter 2.21 says, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Jesus was tempted, yet was without sin. In 1 John 3, 5, it says, You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Jesus is without sin. In fact, this is a very important part of our salvation in the fact that Jesus possessed for us what we call representative obedience before God as our substitute. Now listen to what we're saying here. That this is an important part of salvation. That Jesus is for us a representative before God. And we have in Christ a representative obedience before God. And this is why salvation is by grace through faith. And it's not of what? Of works, lest anyone should boast in his own abilities to please God. Why? Because we have a representative obedience of Christ before God. Why is God pleased with us? Why will we, God no longer hold us accountable for our sins? Because Christ obeyed on our behalf. That's why. 
Amen? You understand? Huge chasm between Christianity and every other world religion. There is no other world religion that has representative obedience before God. None. Zero. Zip. Doesn't exist. And there's only one man who's ever lived who has that ability. Okay? Well, this is exactly what the Scripture says. Jesus is able then, because of this representative obedience, Jesus is able then to impart to us through imputation His perfect righteousness. Okay? The Scripture puts it like this. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made Him, that is, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Now look what the Scripture says. That Christ represented us as sin on the cross. And that Jesus represents us as righteousness before God. Now that's representative obedience. Amen? That's how the Scripture describes it. That God made Him who knew no sin on our behalf, that we might become what? The righteousness of God in Him. Now we're in Christ and we have what? We have right standing with God. Not that we are righteous, but that in Christ what has happened? We've been declared righteous. Because He represents us, what? On our behalf. He's a representative for us. You with me? Okay? Romans 5, 18 and 19. Look what this says. It says here, So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. And here again, the Scripture describing in very certain and clear terms that we have a right standing, a righteous standing with God. Through what? Through the one act of Christ's obedience. Okay? Now think about what that is saying in regard to the humanity of Christ and how important it was for Jesus to come and become a man and live a perfect life of righteousness. Why is that so important? So that us sinners can have a representative obedience before God. That's what the Scripture says. That He did that on our behalf. And that we have a righteous standing before God. By what? By the one act of Christ's obedience. Romans 5.19 That's what it says. That's why you can cease from your labors, family. You can cease from your labors because Christ has already earned God's favor for you. It's done, finished, it's over. You're in Christ. You're righteous in Christ. Amen? You with me? You can rest. It's okay. It's going to be okay. Listen, if you're in Christ, you can rest. There's no condemnation from God for you. You're in the beloved. You're the Father's beloved children. Amen? There's no more angry God for you. If you're in Christ, listen, 
Your righteousness is like the noonday sun. Believe it? I want to tell you, you're not righteous in and of yourself. You know that. Our conscience bears witness against us continually. Amen? I mean, this thing is almost too good to believe. We just can't hardly believe that we stand before God with perfect righteousness. But I'm telling you, that's God's promise. And here it is right here in Romans 5.19. It is by the one act of Christ's obedience that we have been made righteous. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. What? In him. In him we are the righteousness of God. You see that? He became sin and died on our behalf. He lived a perfect, righteous human life to give us that righteous obedience before God. Jesus is our representative obedience. Don't forget that. It's extremely important in your struggle with sin. Amen? Our faith is in Christ, not in us. Or our ability to be righteous. Amen? Okay. All right. Because Jesus was sinless, he was therefore able to offer himself as a substitute sacrifice on our behalf because he did not need to die for his own sins. Now here's another reason why the humanity of Jesus is so important. Okay? He had to become a man. And he had to be made like us in every way so that he could perfectly fulfill the, the, his propitiation of God's wrath on the cross for us. He had to be one of us, in other words, in order to die for us. So he had to be fully man in this sense, that he had to be able to represent us in his death because of our sin and be a replacement, a substitute, a sacrifice on our part. Okay? This is what the scripture says. Therefore, when he offered himself for, for us, he, he was able to atone for all sin, including all the sins of all the people. Okay? Hebrews 7.26 says this, For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest. What kind of a high priest? Holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Let me ask you a question. Did Jesus live a sinless life? Oh yeah, he did. Here's how the scripture describes his priesthood. He was holy. He was innocent. He was undefiled. And he was separated from sinners. He had a perfect obedience before God. He was without sin. Amen? And the scripture says, it was fitting for him to be that way Right? Why? Because he does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices for his own sins, right? And then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Here's the, here's the idea. If Jesus is holy and undefiled and separated from sin, how valuable is the death of 
of an unblemished, undefiled man in regard to the payment for sin. How valuable is that? Well, it goes like this. In Adam all die, in Christ all shall be made alive. In other words, the value of Adam's sin was enough to make the whole world sinners. And the value of Jesus' perfect life when he died on the cross, the value of that atones for all sin, period, and plural. You understand? It's a, it's a payment of infinite worth so that it can cover the sins of every man that ever lived and every woman that ever lived. Jesus' payment of sin is a payment in full. Understand? And, and this is what the Scripture is saying. He didn't have to die for his own sins. Right? And so when he offered up himself, he did it once for all. The righteous for the unrighteous. And that's why that one act, that one, by one offering, Hebrews 10, 14, by one offering he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. It's that one act of Christ that covers all of our sin. Amen? Okay. We're ending here. So then Jesus has become for us a high priest who is able to offer himself as a substitute sacrifice on our behalf. And Jesus is a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weakness, having experienced our humanity and the sufferings and weaknesses that accompany our daily lives. He is the perfect mediator between God and man, being fully God and fully man. Here's what it means. When you're struggling with sin, and you're on your knees, and you're crying out to God for help, listen, Jesus knows your pain. He knows your struggle. And He is with you. And yea, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He is with us in the fire, family. He is with us on our day of darkness. He is with us in our pain. He is with us in our struggle. And let me tell you, he has drunk the cup of God's wrath to the bottom. And he knows what it's like to suffer. And he has a very sympathetic and kind and tender ear for us. He knows the pain. He knows the shame. He knows the guilt. You understand? He knows what's in a man. He knows what's in a woman. And he has an ear to hear when you cry to him. Amen? That's what the scripture says. He is able to sympathize with us. And so the scripture says, we can come boldly to the throne of grace and find help in time of need. Amen? God help us. Let's pray.
Oh, Lord, we praise you. We see you in your humanity, God, and we are in wonder and amazement. And Lord, it is such a precious thing to us to come to learn and know and understand these things about you. I pray, God, that you'd open our eyes to see things we have never seen, wonderful things. God, show us great and mighty things which we do not know. We thank you for your love to us. We thank you for this rich word in the scripture. We honor and we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.